Welcome to the Coffee House Questions Podcast. This is Ryan Pauly. Joining me on the podcast today is Megan Alman. Megan is uh, one of the speakers at the Life Training Institute, which, which is an organization founded by Scott Klusendorf, uh, doing pro-life apologetics. Uh, so, Megan, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I'm really glad to be joining you, although I, I guess I'm 3,000 miles away, but I'm glad to be <laughs> glad to be over the phone. Yeah, it is good. Megan's joining me on Skype, so if there's any kind of uh, difficulties there, that's that's uh, how that happens. But um, you can find out more information on the Pro-Life uh, Apologetics and Life Training Institute. Their website is prolifetraining.org, and they just have some great stuff. And I know that abortion and pro-life, pro-choice, abortion choice, you know, this, these are all topics that are very big. And so I wanted to be able to sit down and talk with someone and kind of help us have a better understanding about how to make a case for life and how to defend some of the objections. And so what uh, we're going to be doing is we're going to be for, uh, recording this two-part podcast. Uh, the first part will be we will take the case for life and just build a case for life based on the science of embryology and philosophy and that sort of thing. And then next week we'll be recording part two. Uh, which we're going over some of those objections, and so make sure you catch both parts of this podcast. Um, but Megan, um, I noticed that you worked as an award-winning journalist until 2009, and you decided to you decided to leave that and join the Life Training Institute until in 2009. Uh, what kind of caused you to leave the journalism and and join the Life Training Institute? Right. That's a big 180, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I was uh, a newspaper reporter. Uh, my undergraduate is in journalism and um, I, I like to tell stories. I like to communicate. So it just made sense for me to do that in the town where I was living after I got married. Um, and one night as the rookie of the newsroom, uh, they sent me to cover, they would do this quite often, actually, events that nobody else wanted to do. Um, and so one night that event happened to be our local uh, pregnancy Resource Center's uh, annual fundraising banquet. Um, they, they, the editor came into the office and he said, "Hey, Megan, uh, here's a camera. Go to this event. There's free food." Um, <laughs> I said, "Sure." All right. And so I went to the event um, to cover it for the community. And uh, the guy that was speaking that night was Scott Klusendorf, who I work for now. Um, and so I, I really, I'd never heard. Um, I, I was a Christian at the time. Um, but I had never heard apologetics being done uh, in in that way before. And so uh, twofold, I, w I was, number one, so impressed by the case that he built for life, the case against abortion, that I, I put my pen down and I remembered pretty much everything he said. I was I just took it all in. Um, but not only that, he was making a case for the Christian worldview. Uh, that was, you know, based in these other areas and, and just really drawing upon reasons and, and, and that I'd never considered before, um, as a Christian. And so I went home and I was so interested in this thing called apologetics. Um, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. Uh, a couple years into that journey, um, my husband sat me down and he just said, you know, you really seem to be interested in this and I think you could do something special with it. So I, I think we should, I think you should quit your job, and I think we need to send you back to school. And so that's what we did, and here I am. <laughs> and as I saw, you went back, and you ended up getting your master's in apologetics from Biola. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. I was, uh, wasn't really sure what to do school-wise. I spent one year in seminary. I knew that I wanted to teach 
somewhere in the area of Christianity. I wanted to start communicating those truths. Um, and after a year in seminary, I was actually listening to the Stand to Reason podcast out of your neck of the woods. Yep. And uh, I heard Mary Jo Sharp talk about the Viola program. And she was a female apologist doing this type of work. And of course, that's what I wanted to be doing. Um, so it was a very easy transition from there. Immediately, I said, that's that's what I want to do. Yeah, that's great. And, and you know, for those that don't know, I'm also right currently in the master's in apologetics program at Biola. And, and hey, if you have time to get the master's, it is an incredible program. If you don't, they have a certificate program that I know a lot of people are getting. And so Biola has some awesome, uh, great options uh, for people that are interested in apologetics. Absolutely. I was I was a mom at the time. My, my daughter was very young and um, I did the modular distance program, which allowed me to do my course study at home and mm -hmm. online. But then I would go in the summer for residencies. And so I got to meet my professors and work with them and my classmates and make some lifelong friendships there. And it, it was really the, the best option. That's great. Yeah, I've heard incredible things about that modular distance program. I'm on campus uh, currently, and so, but I, I've met the distance students over the summer when they come in for residency, and and they mm -hmm. they seem to really love it, and that's a great option. Um, okay, so so kind of back to this uh, topic. So you went to this presentation uh, by Scott Klusendorf, and you said he presented reasons and thoughts and, and things that you'd never really thought about as a Christian before. Absolutely. And so what it sounds like you're saying is that there's uh, more reason to be pro-life than just, well, the Bible says so, and we can give a better reason um, for our case. Is that what you're, you're kind of saying? Absolutely. That's what blew me away. Okay. So so kind of work through this with us. If, if you know, I'm out in public and someone wants to know why I'm pro-life, how can I go about making a case for a life and, and kind of against abortion? Right. Well, uh the first thing I would say, Ryan, is that we have to dig under the surface a little bit before you would begin talking. You need to understand some certain things about this conversation or these types of conversations, because the issue of abortion, uh, many will say that it's a complicated issue. And I think they're right in that there are a lot of things that bump into it um, that are that are complicated. But morally speaking, abortion is a simple issue and it's a moral issue. Um, and because we're talking about a moral question here, uh, should abortion be allowed? I, we're talking about something that is objective in nature. Uh, and what I mean is we live in a culture that is immersed in moral relativism. The idea that truth is not objective, but rather it is subjective and particularly moral and religious truths. Um, so in other words, when you're making moral and religious claims in our culture, most often what other people hear you saying is, this is my personal preference. Mm -hmm. This is a truth that I created. Uh, because that's what subjective truths are. They're true of the subject, you. Yeah. Uh, but in reality, when we make these moral and religious claims, we are saying something about what reality is like, the nature of reality. Um, this is an objective type of claim. And so that's the first thing that we need to have an understanding of as we enter into these conversations. And sometimes we need to very graciously point that out to whomever we're speaking with um, about about this topic. So uh, just as an example, um, I, I was on campus in uh, North Florida doing a pro-life event with another group. I had gone in to train their volunteers because they wanted to have a, an event on campus where they could discuss this issue uh, reasonably with other people and have and have a serious conversation about it. Uh, the event went really well. But uh, during the middle of it, there was a young woman who was uh, very unhappy that we were there. 
she had scribbled a poster that said pro-choice and proud of it. And she was standing there with her poster. She was angry and she was saying things to people as they walked by. So I approached this young woman and asked if we could talk. And she said, sure. And I asked her what brought her out to the event. And she said, I would never have an abortion. But what you were talking about here on the campus today, I, I don't think you have a right to say what goes on in the privacy of other people's bedrooms. I, and honestly, I think you need to leave. Um, so naturally, <laughs> I, I thanked her for her honesty <laughs> because I appreciate honesty. Um, yeah. But I'd heard something that she said. She was talking about this as if it were a preference type of issue. I would never have one, but that's my truth. And so I asked her, what do you personally oppose about abortion? And the, right, without hesitating, she said it kills a baby. And so I asked her another question because I picked up on this and I wanted to kind of point out the kind of conversation we were having. I said, I want to understand what your view is. And here's what I understand so far. You can tell me if I'm wrong. You think that abortion kills a baby. Those were her words. Mm -hmm. But I said, you think it should be legal to kill babies. And she got very quiet because, Ryan, she had bought the lie that this was a subjective type of issue. And I was just trying to point out that it's not so we could proceed with the conversation. Yeah. Um, sometimes it, you can do that with a question. Sometimes it just takes very gently pointing out, hey, you know what? I wasn't really talking about my preference when it comes to this. I really think it's wrong for everyone apart from me. Um, and I have reasons for why that is. And then you can then you can go on. But it's important that we understand that going into it. Yeah, we, we kind of have to be on that same page um, because of living in the relativistic culture. Um, and I've talked before on this podcast about, you know, that moral relativism is self-defeating. Uh, but what people want to say is like, well, you know, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. You know, but the question is, is that true for everyone or is that relative? Um, and so you can kind of get into that. But so it's first, like you say, it's good to establish um, this objective morality. Yes. It is, and you know, it, particularly when it comes to the issue of abortion. So there's a famous bumper sticker or a slogan that's out there that says, don't like abortion, don't have one. And some might be familiar with it. I'm not sure if everybody is. But imagine if that sticker said, don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Yeah. That would be an obvious one to our culture. We understand that that is absolutely wrong for everyone. But when it comes to abortion, there's still a lot of confusion out there. Yeah, absolutely. Alrighty, so we've kind of gone over this first part that it's it's good to establish that this is an objective moral you know claim. Uh, we need to be on that same page. Now, how can we go about showing that um, abortion is killing a baby? Great. Yeah. Well, the first thing we have to do in a conversation, as we say at LTI, is to simplify the issue. We need to get the, the conversation back to one question that's at the center of the whole debate, and that question is, what is the unborn? And there's a very simple thought experiment that I can give you that, that will illustrate that. In fact, I'm going to borrow it from Greg Kokel because he and Scott originated this. But he talks about, imagine yourself standing at your kitchen window, and you are looking out on a beautiful day, and you are washing dishes up to your elbows in dish suds when your son comes into the room behind your back where you cannot see him. And he says, mommy or daddy, can I kill this? Now, you can't see him, so your first response is naturally going to be, can you kill what? <laughs> what yeah. are you holding? 
Um, so there are plenty of funny things you could think of that a young boy might be holding. We live in the woods outside of Atlanta, and my son brings into our home species I did not even know existed. Um, <laughs> so that that question actually comes up quite a bit. But if he's holding a cockroach in my kitchen, yes, I will help you. Yeah, go ahead and kill <laughs> so, it. I mean, call me inconsistent if you want. But no, <laughs> if he's holding the next door neighbor's dog, uh, no, we're not going to kill the dog, even though that dog it, it does bite. Um, if he is holding his little sister by the neck, that we have a serious problem on our hands. No. So the point of the illustration is the answer to what is it really matters. We cannot kill the unborn until we know what the unborn is. If having an abortion really isn't any different than clipping my fingernail or pulling my tooth, then I can retire. But if the unborn are human beings, that is a different matter altogether. That's a great point, and the, just the importance of we have to answer that question and be on the same page with the other person of what is it. Right, and you have to look out because people will oftentimes skip that question. Yeah, they will. Um, they'll make a the the fancy term is begging the question. Um, by because people will make assertions as to why they think abortion should be allowed. So you can imagine, like my friend on the campus who said, "This is an issue of privacy." In other words, you, you shouldn't have the right to say what goes on in the privacy of someone's bedroom, which, by the way, is what the federal law appeals to. Um, but then aren't they at the same time saying that, you know, they, they tell me I can't say what happens in the bedroom. Well, they're telling what can happen at the bed, like in the bedroom. There like, is that. Like there that's one that. question I, I, I ask a lot is I just had someone talk to me about this is they said, you know, their argument says we, we should not tell someone how to live. It's like, well, then why are you telling me how to live? Yes. You know, so in, in a way, you're right. It's like the question, uh, you can't impose your morality on other people. Yeah. Um, there is something to that. But even further than that, you will know that they are begging the question if you ask yourself, what if it were a toddler that we were talking about? Yeah, that's a great point. Now, can you kind of expound, uh, explain that a little bit? How can bringing out a toddler in this example help us understand where they're, if they're begging the question or not? Yeah, well, what we know about toddlers and what everyone, I think, would recognize is that toddlers are valuable human beings. Nobody could say that we could kill them for just any reason. And so when somebody makes reasons or tells you reasons for why they think abortion should be okay, you need to ask yourself, would this be okay if we were talking about a toddler? Because our question is, what is the unborn? And if the unborn is human and valuable like that toddler, then we can't kill the unborn for the same reason, for the same reasons. Um, okay. So, for example, I, my friend on the campus appealed to privacy. So we could look at that and say, well, is this an issue of privacy? In other words, the, the objection might go, abortion is an issue of privacy. It's a private matter between a woman and her doctor or between a woman and her God. And you have no say as to what goes on in the privacy of the bedroom. Well, just insert a toddler there. So if I were in conversation with someone, I might ask them, Hey, let's imagine for the sake of conversation that I have a toddler standing next to me. I might even put my hand out about waist high just to, as a visual aid. Mm -hmm. And I might say, his parents would like the right to rough him up in the privacy of their bedroom. Do you think that they should have that right? Now, I'll just be real with you. The, that person's going to look at you like you're nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to say, no, that's crazy. So ask them, why not? Because you're trying to get back to your question. Yeah. They'll probably say something like, that toddler is obviously human, obviously a person. They may even say, well, that's different. And here's where you want to be. Because you can ask, is it different? Is the unborn human like the toddler is human? What is the unborn? Let's talk about that. Then we can talk about issues of privacy. Mm -hmm. 
So when you use the toddler as an example, you just are able to make some distinctions that need to be made and get back to your question. That's great. So you're you're helping help, helping them see, and you're also coming to a better understanding of where they're at and how they view the unborn. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this works with a, any number of objections that you can think of. Um, you know, women should be free to pursue their careers, and so they should be allowed to have abortions. Well, nobody would say that you could should kill a two year old to go ahead and pursue your career. That that wouldn't be okay. And so, is the unborn human like the two year old? We need to talk about that. Yeah. Um, many would say this woman can't afford another mouth to feed. They'll appeal to poverty. And, and by the way, I don't take poverty lightly. It's a serious issue. But we wouldn't say that you could kill a toddler to lessen the financial stress on a family. Mm-hmm. And if the unborn is human like the toddler is human, then we can't do that either. Yeah. Um, so so it's important to get back to the question. Yeah. And, and, and so that really helps you see, you know, and come to an understanding of where they're at on what is the unborn. Yes. Um, there's a there's a quote that I heard you say when I when I met you and I heard you speak at Summit Ministries, um, in reference to if the unborn is not human, uh, no amount of justification is is needed. Um, can you say that that's, again? Yes, and that that's actually Greg Kokel. He wrote it in his 1999 book, Precious Unborn Human Persons, um, and he said it this way: If the unborn is not human then no justification or reason for abortion is necessary. In other words, have as many as you want. But if the unborn is human, then no justification for abortion is adequate. In other words, there's no reason good enough. In the same way that there's no reason good enough that we could kill a toddler. Exactly. Okay. Awesome. Okay, so that kind of helps us see where the other person is at. We have to get back to asking the question, what is it? Yes. Okay. And then when you get back to the question, you can't leave them hanging there. You need to provide an answer. (laughs) Okay. So now how do we go about providing an answer for that question? Well, yeah. Interesting thing about that question before I answer it, and I'm going to, um, this is not a religious question, Ryan. And I think so often people get um, kind of sucked into that trap uh, because of the, the relativistic society we live in. Oftentimes you'll get to this point in the conversation and they'll say, oh, I see that you must be a religious person. Well, that's your truth. No, don't don't go there. See, this is a scientific question. We go to science to answer the question. Uh, and particularly, we can go to the science of embryology. That's the study of embryos. And I have a quote right here from a 2008 embry- embryology textbook written by Keith Moore and TVN Persaud. Um, it's used in, in medical classrooms. And it says, a zygote is the beginning of a new human being. Human development begins at fertilization, the process during which a male gamete unites with a female gamete, uh, to form a single cell called a zygote. This highly specialized cell marks the beginning of each of us as unique individuals. Now, science of embryology, if that wasn't clear enough, What it's saying is that from the very beginning, that is conception, the unborn is a living, distinct, whole human being. Okay, so a living, distinct, whole human being. That's a mouthful, yes. But we can can break those down. We can look at living and see that just like the definition of an organism that you would learn in a seventh grade biology class, the unborn undergoes cellular reproduction, meaning it grows – It metabolizes by turning its food into energy. It responds to stimuli. All of these are definitions of you. That that fits the definition of an organism. 
So we know that it's alive. The unborn is also distinct. In other words, it's not part of a woman's body, especially not in the same way that my arm is a part of my body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rather, it's, it's its own unique entity. In fact, what we know from embryology is that it has its own unique genetic code that's different from moms and dads, which is often why you'll hear people say, well, it has its own blood type and its own organs and its own gender. These are all true because it is distinct. Okay. And the, so, so when yeah. someone says, you know, it's my body, well, it really isn't. It is a distinct organism that has a different genetic makeup. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, maybe it may. Now there are different things you can get into. It's what that we'll get into with, with the philosophy as far as its uh, dependency on that body. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is it is its own entity? Okay. And which leads me to the third point. It is whole. In other words, it is not part of another organism and like my skin cells are a part of me. In fact, I could scratch off my skin cells, all of which contain my DNA coding, and I would not be committing mass murder when they fall on my desk and die. Those cells are part of me. They contribute to the overall function of the organism that is Megan. Mm-hmm. Now, an embryo is different in kind from any other cell, just any old cell. In fact, it's different from an egg cell and a sperm cell, which are also technically alive. Um, it's it's a whole entity in and of itself, and its parts, even at that single-celled stage, work together to contribute to its overall function. Um, one other thing we could say about it, it's, its wholeness, is that unlike something that is constructed. And and let me just talk about that for a second, because we live in a society that tends to think of the unborn as constructed things. Um, That's why you hear language like, well, it's a clump of cells or it's Mm -hmm. a blob of blob of tissue. Yeah. The idea being that you could add some more parts to this clump of cells and the end product would be a baby. Um, And in in a way, I guess I can understand where the thinking has gone because we do live in a very industrial society. We build a lot of things. We build cars on assembly lines. And I mean, my kids build Legos all day long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So so, uh, the thinking, in fact, if you look at the terminology that's gone from a word like procreation and now predominantly we say reproduction, um, it just gives you an idea of where people's people's thoughts are. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, but the unborn does something that no constructed thing could ever do. It develops itself from within. It's not constructed at all. It develops. That's very different. Yeah, absolutely. So you're so it's developing itself. Yes. Not needing an outside, you know, force or agent to to build it. No, as long as it is in that environment, it develops itself from within. And in fact, um, I think I discussed this at Summit too. This this science just blows my mind. And I know this is a little bit technical, but just bear with me because it's it's fascinating. Um, neurobiologist uh, Maureen Kondik said that when, she, when she, she was getting a, pre- a presentation at Notre Dame, and she said that when the, the scientists are looking at cells in biology, the way that they can tell that they have a brand new cell is one of two ways. Either a cell changes in the stuff that it's made up of, so the material composition is the fancy term, or it changes in the way that it behaves. And if either of those things happen, then what biologists say you have is a brand new cell. So what happens at fertilization when sperm meets egg within 250 milliseconds, that's a teeny, teeny tiny window of time. Yeah, we, we can't even comprehend that. <laughs> no, it's so, it's so minute. Uh, within 250 milliseconds, 
the plasma membranes of those cells begin to fuse. In other words, the stuff it's made up of begins to change. And therefore, you have a new cell. And in fact, it goes from being an egg cell that could live about 24 hours where it was to being a new kind of cell. And when that change begins to take place and that development begins to happen, this new cell has the ability to live upwards of 100 years or more given medical technology because it's a human kind of cell. Hmm. Yeah. So so with so less than a second mm-hmm. after conception, you have a new living distinct uh, cell. Yes, it's a new cell and the type of cell that it is is a human being. Is a human being. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's not, you know, as we'll kind of get to later, um, it's not, you know, when the heartbeat starts or when the brain activity or certain like things like that is that according to the science, it is a living, distinct, whole human being. That's right. In less than a second after conception. Yeah, that means that that none of us came from embryos. We once were embryos. And at that point in our development, we did not yet need a beating heart. It was developing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Alrighty, so here we have, I think, a, a great um, case and good information that is pretty easy to understand, um, or at least remember, um, that in less than a second after conception, we have a new, living, distinct, whole human being. Uh, I think where the where the where this conversation goes now um, is that okay, some may say this is a human being, but it's not a person. Right. Um, and now we kind of get into the philosophy. Could you kind of explain now? What is the next step in, in showing that this is a human being, um, you know, with a you know, human person or however you want to define that? That's a great point. And sometimes, particularly on uh, if you're on a university campus or somewhere like that, you're going to you're going to get this type of distinction. Uh, what people are really getting at when they make that distinction, Ryan, is that what they're saying is that there are some human beings who don't count as much as other human beings. As uh, For example, some human beings are not yet valuable people. Mm hmm. Um, so there's a differentiation somewhere along the line. And that that's where this conversation hones in. And it is a philosophical conversation because the question that's underlying that is what makes human beings valuable? Yeah, that's the good way to put it. I guess I was kind of trying to find that language. Um, yeah, it is a human being, but it doesn't have value yet. Mm-hmm. Or not value enough to give it rights or to, for it to count enough. Right? Exactly. Uh, when we can look all throughout history and see, ooh, that runs into some problems when you start saying some human beings don't count as much as other human beings. Um, yeah, we have, exa- we have a lot of examples of that. Yes, we do. Yes, we do, sadly. Um, and are still living out the consequences of many of them. Yep. Um, well, this, this is another example, and, and ideas have real-world consequences, and sometimes those consequences are dangerous. And as... The case of abortion has proven um, in, a, in a, a Holocaust unlike our world has ever seen before. Um, anyway, what we're what we're getting at here is: Are the unborn valuable? So we know they're human. Science has established that they're human. But then we have to ask that question: Well, what is it that makes us valuable? As I said, it's a philosophical question, and philosophy gives us a couple of categories to work with when it comes to this question. Okay. One type of answer to this question. Uh, would be an instrumental type of answer. So I, I like that word instrumental because it makes me think of an instrument, which um, we all know with instruments, you use it for a purpose. It it can perform in a certain way. So an instrumental answer is going to have to do with a trait or an attribute or an ability that you have uh, because of your humanity. Now, 
The other type of answer that philosophy gives us, another I word, is intrinsic. So it may be that you're intrinsically valuable. Now, this one is very simple. This just means you are valuable in light of the kind of thing that you are. No more, no less. You count because you are human. So those are the two, those are the two types of categories we have to work with. Now, when somebody says that's a human being, but it's not a person yet, we know that their answer is going to fall somewhere in the instrumental category because they've got to now tell us what's the difference. At what point does a human being become a valuable person? And the answers are all over the map. Um, but we have a kind of a simple way that, that you can look at these answers. Stephen Schwartz really helped us out in 1990 when he wrote The Moral Question of Abortion. And in that book, he tells us, um, by the way, Schwartz would take the intrinsic view. He would say that we're, we're valuable because we're human, but he, he demonstrates as to why he takes that view. He says there are only four areas of difference you can even point out between embryos and us. And those four areas, they are instrumental differences, but here they are. Embryos are smaller, so size. They're less developed, so level of development. They're located in a different place, so environment. And they're dependent upon their mothers. So degree of dependency, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. This is the SLED acronym. And if you can remember SLED, then you can remember these differences. But Schwartz says these differences just don't work in the way that somebody would need them to, to say that we could kill you then, but not now. Okay, so so when we're in these conversations, we should be able to apply uh, this sled test to help people understand uh, the difference and where they're coming at as far as value. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, well, let's use size, for example. Okay. So starting out with the first, uh, the S in sled size, uh, yeah. what could we say? Okay. Well, the objection might go, the embryo is tiny. It's no more than the, the tip of your pin. Therefore, it's insignificant. It's not deserving of a right to life. It's not yet valuable enough to be considered a person. Well, does size determine our value? Because once we draw the line at size, then if we're in a room of people, we can play a game called let's all stand up. <laughs> and, <laughs> Who, and if, <laughs> who's more valuable? They could eat more or something. <laughs> right, something. Um, but if size is what determines our value, then we've created a gross inequality because some of us are smaller than others. And when we draw the line at size, what we've done is create a value spectrum on which those human beings who are smaller are less valuable and therefore less deserving of a right to life than those who are larger. And you can the consequences are just crazy. For example, women in general are smaller than men. Yeah. We lose. We lose if this is what determines our value. It just doesn't work in the way that we need it to. There's no grounding for human equality there. No, absolutely not. So then we could look at level of development and that one will actually come up in all different kinds of ways. Remember, this is a category that he's giving us. Um, so level of development, like I said, can look differently. It could, it could have to do with, well, it hasn't developed this or that yet. It hasn't developed the ability to do this yet. So this is a broad category. Mm -hmm. It is true that the unborn are less developed, but does our level of development determine our value once again? Well, we've created another spectrum. For example, my daughter is 10 years old. She does not yet have a fully working reproductive system. She hasn't developed it yet. But I can't kill my daughter because she's less developed than me. If that's if it's true that the unborn should be killed because they're less developed than we are, then those who are less developed than anyone else have, have to look out 
So we have the spectrum, but if we grant it for the unborn, we've got to be consistent. Logic demands consistency across the board. And I think that's the important right point that you just now made is, is and you mentioned it before, but the logic demands consistency. And yeah. we should be able to apply the same logic in all in different circumstances and be consistent. Right, right. I speak, for example, and Ryan, you're a high school teacher. I speak mostly to high school students. That's the audience I'm most often in front of. Their brains are not fully developed yet. Neuroscience tells us that the brain is not finished developing until around the age of 25 when the hemispheres you know, finish fusing together or, or whatever. I'm not sure of the technical terms, but all of us are still developing in some way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So level of development, neither size nor level of development determines uh, value. Next on the sled, te sled test, we have environment. Right. That's where you're located. Okay. The unborn are located inside of the mother. Therefore, some say they should not have a right to life. But does where you are determine what you are? I think that any of us could see that when we walk from one room to the next, just a few feet, we don't become something else. And if that is true, then that eight to nine inch journey down the birth canal cannot make a non-valuable entity into a valuable entity. If that's the case, then again, logic demands, if we look at the spectrum, then we need to be careful if we move to a new address. Yeah, moving address, flying in an airplane. Rolling over in bed at night, any of it. Yeah, I go scuba diving. If I'm underwater, am I different? <laughs> right, no, and there are wonderful philosophical reasons for why you're not different because of that, but... <laughs> Another yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. And so then the last uh, one on the sled test is degree, degree of dependency. Yes. The unborn are dependent upon their mothers for survival. Some would say, therefore, they're not deserving of a right to life. But again, Ryan, I can look from my own family. My mom is diabetic. She's dependent upon her medicine to survive because her body does not process sugars in the way that it ought to. But I cannot kill my mom because of her dependency. Mm -hmm. But if it's true for the unborn, then we have to be consistent across the board. And we have people who are dependent in all different kinds of ways. New newborns are dependent upon their mothers. My four-year-old is not getting anywhere without me in a car. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, in the same way, my students, when they graduate high school and move out of the house and go off to college, they don't become more valuable. No, Becoming more independent, you know, now that they're out of the house. Right. And therefore, more deserving of a right to life. It just... It just makes for gross inequality. So when we give, what we find is when we give these instrumental types of answers, as SLED so beautifully demonstrates, uh, there is no grounding for human equality there at all. And we do live in a culture that values the, the idea of human equality. And that was one thing I was just kind of mention. It's a little bit different topic, um, or at least can be a different topic. But in our culture, even right now, we're seeing so much on the news of people trying to claim equality. You know, whether it's equal pay or just equal rights or equal whatever, yes. um, we're trying to claim that equality saying, no, there isn't a difference between whether it's, you know, race or job or whatever. We want equal something. And these are instrumental differences. Skin color is an instrumental difference. As far back as Abraham Lincoln, he understood this when he was fighting against slavery and rightly so. He said, and I'll paraphrase to the slave owners, you say that this man has dark skin and you have light skin, therefore you can make him your slave. But be careful, because by that same reasoning, anyone who is lighter skin than yours can make you his slave. Yeah. He saw the spectrum. So none of these reasons work in the way that people think they should. Yeah. Um, 
And we can see it when it comes to skin color. That's an obvious one. And I'm glad that we understand that now. I'm just hoping that we can see it when it comes to this human rights issue as well. Exactly. That's a great point. All right. So kind of as we wrap up this this first part, um, if someone's on the street, uh, you know, we've learned a lot of information. Is there kind of a short way to summarize everything that we've just talked about? Yes, you can. You can very quickly just to hit the highlights of what we talked about. And, and if you can kind of remember these, you can make your case. When somebody says, why in the world are you pro-life? You don't have to, you know, you get defensive or anything like that. Just, just very calmly and reasonably say, I am pro-life because the science of embryology, the study of embryos tells me that from the very beginning at conception, the unborn is a living, distinct, whole human being. And philosophy goes a step further to show me that it's not true that some human beings are more valuable than others based on differences like size and level of development or environment or degree of dependency. In fact, what philosophy demonstrates is the only grounding for human equality exists under the answer that we are intrinsically valuable. That is valuable in light of the fact that we are human and we share a common human nature from the point we come into existence to the point that we die. And if Christianity is true, and if you want to have that conversation, a long time after that. Wow, that can be done very quickly. Yeah, it can. Now, there's a lot of unpacking to do there. Yeah. But that, that's the case. And that's what I find is the most helpful is is when you're on the street, when you're kind of at the office, wherever it is, you're talking with your friends. If they bring something up, if you can kind of give that short answer to show, hey, I've thought through this before. Um, there's times where that answer is sufficient and, and they accept it. And there's other times where then they begin to ask more questions and then you have to need to, the need to unpack it a little bit more. But to kind of have that short response can be so helpful. Right. And Ryan, what the beautiful thing about this message is not only are you demonstrating the value of the unborn, but you're demonstrating to that other person their own value as well. Maybe they don't understand that they're intrinsically valuable. Yeah. So it really these conversations can lead for those uh, listeners you have who are Christians. Um, they lead to gospel conversations more than any others that I know of. That's a great point. Well, Megan, thank you so much uh, for joining me in this podcast and going over the science of embryology and philosophy and helping us understand, you know, first we have to ask the question of what is it and then giving us a response to that question. You're welcome. I was so glad to be with you. Awesome. Well, for those of you listening, this just remember, this is only part one. Megan will be joining me again next week. Uh, going over objections, using this information and going over objections. So do not miss uh, next week's podcast as well. Make sure you're looking out for it to catch part two of this discussion. Megan, thank you so much again for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks, Brian. All righty. Have a great day. Your love will guide my